Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, a roundup of worldwide space developments with our very own contributing editor, Laura Winter, the editor of the Downlink newsletter and the upcoming Downlink space podcast. But first, as it's Monday, joining us is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look ahead at the week and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bago. Absolutely great uh, to have you back on. Thanks for joining us on Friday, and I uh, hope you had a terrific weekend. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Byron, uh, another great note uh, on uh, what you're looking at as you look at the week ahead. Talk to us a little bit about the, the debt. Uh, situation. We discussed this at length uh, on the Friday podcast, and there's uh, optimism that some form of deal will be struck. But actually, if you look at the conditions for this, you could actually see a debt default, right? Republicans are, you know, historically, debt increase votes have been bipartisan. Republicans, in this case, have told Democrats, hey, you have to either scrap your entire agenda or we won't support a debt increase. And oh, by the way, either way, we're going to run against you in 22 as taxes. Uh, spend uh, Democrats, uh, not exactly the language that gets Democrats to want to go along with them on anything, uh, ultimately, although I understand that, you know, Republicans look at this as uh, principled. Others would say Republicans only care about the debt when there's a Democrat in the White House, as we've been discussing on the podcast for a long time. What do you think the dynamic factors are this time? And why is it we don't end up either with the BCA as a best case, or actually a debt default in the worst case? Well, okay, so what's on this week? Obviously, you know, there's a whole bunch of issues in Washington, D.C. that don't directly bear on defense, but actually do directly bear on defense. And to your point, the debt ceiling and kind of the state of play or where we go with that is is going to be one of the more key items. Uh, and I'd point out that, that both Powell and Yellen um, are going to testify before the Senate Banking Committee on Tuesday September 28th. You know, I think I think right now it's interesting because markets are, are making a presumption that, oh, this is just Washington brinkmanship as usual. And, you know, they'll, they'll figure out a last minute deal. It's going to be very interesting if markets start to reach a different conclusion. And, you know, markets have a, an interesting way of yanking uh, Congress's chain when <clears throat> it strays in ways that are fundamentally detrimental to the economy and, and the financial system. And when that yank happens, it can be very painful and very quick. So, you, you know, I think the operative assumption is, yeah, they'll figure it out. But to your point, there absolutely is a risk that, um, you know, nothing happens. But then I think the market reaction and the market reaction is not going to be, you um, when, when we've seen these things in the past, <clears throat> the market will usually figure out and frankly, public opinion will blame the side that has triggered this particular event. So um, a event, when you look at some of the prior lengthy shutdowns, we've never had a, a debt ceiling breach, you know, where, where we haven't been able to raise the debt ceiling. So to a degree, this is kind of uncharted territory, but, you know, 
the the market ramifications of this, what it could do to interest rates, how it would affect a lot of these very arcane things in in foreign exchange um, trading. You know, it's just uh, I think that hopefully, you know, cooler heads do prevail in this and that there's a last minute deal. But to the point, you know, right now, um, neither side really seems to be budging, you know, on what's arguably something that's been triggered by uh, by the Republican leadership that, uh, you know, because in the past there's been, you know, we played brinkmanship, but but ultimately it's been a, a, a bipartisan decision to raise the, the debt ceiling, not, not one party saying, hey, that's your job um, because both parties have been responsible for, for where federal debt has trended. Uh, that's like your old joke, right? That's an awfully bad leak on your side of the boat. Yeah, absolutely. Just very quickly about the the broader uh, fiscal situation. Are your clients starting to ask you about this uh, at this point? Or is this something that's not factoring as high up on their radar screen? But as you said, right, for Wall Street, it's not an issue. It's not an issue. And then suddenly it becomes the issue, right? I mean, the markets are very ADHD about this uh, in, in, in some respects. Look, you know, continuing resolutions, you know, the, the whole system has become acclimated to continuing resolutions. So I don't think, I don't think there's a problem with that. And I think even if there's a, you know, federal shutdown for a couple of days, weeks, um, you know, markets can deal with that too, because, it's just the way the market looks at these things, you know, they're really going to focus on quarterly results. Um, and so if we have a shutdown or, you know, series of continuing resolutions through December, um, not that I expect we're going to have a shutdown for that three month period, but, you know, the, the, the damage that might be done, it really won't show up in quarterly results that are reported in uh, in January when, when people release their December quarter results. So, you know, I think that's why, you know, there is a broader issue about kind of Washington, D.C. And, and partisanship and, you know, what can or can't get done. Um, most defense stocks have underperformed the S&P 500 this year. So, you know, you could argue, well, some of that, that kind of sense of gridlock is already baked in, you know, despite despite the moves by House and Senate Armed Services to increase um, you know, the, the administration's request by $25 billion. Uh, you know, it, it's been kind of a, you know, that's nice, but we're, we'll, we'll wait and see what, what actually comes out of the wash and, and all these bigger budget issues before signing up for that in our earnings models. Um, let me uh, take you to the week ahead. What are the big things uh, you're uh, tracking and our audience ought to be paying attention to? I should point out I'm moderating uh, a panel uh, on the post-COVID defense budget uh, situation uh, at the Comdef, annual Comdef conference, uh, obviously a Washington staple in international trade uh, and certainly uh, sadly not happening in person, uh, but that's just what I'm uh, associated with. What are some of the other things, uh, Byron, that you're tracking this week? Yeah, and I will listen you know, to Comdef as well. Um, it's an annual kind of almost a, a boutique conference that I, I found usually very good in terms of not just talking about the budget, but uh, export issues. Um, you know, this theme I think is more about innovation, you know, but it's also going to be interesting because it really does draw in kind of the international uh, defense community in Washington, D.C. So, 
um, you know, like a lot of things, you hope next year that we're back to a live event because that was also one of the beauties of that. It's just, uh, you know, you, you could rub shoulders with people who, um, you know, very knowledgeable on, the, on these subjects. Um, the other biggie for me will be, you know, you have both Secretary of Defense uh, Austin and General Milley, Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, testifying before both the House Armed Services and Senate Armed Services Committees on Afghanistan. I'm I'm intrigued by it. My, my concern, Vago, is that, you know, it's, it's just going to be a partisan mudslinging uh, exercise. You know, why didn't you do this? This is a failure, all this other stuff. When it really should be a time to kind of start saying uh, some some framework or parameters about <clears throat> what lessons should we really learn? How should they be incorporated in a, into things like the national uh, defense strategy in 2022? Um, what does it mean? You know, if, if Afghanistan is potentially another source of instability and, uh, and potentially an exporter of terrorism. I also think that uh, the, you know, the, I, I just finished a book that I recommend uh, called the, the Other Face of Battle. That basically there is a chapter on Afghanistan on this, on this book, but it, it really kind of, you know, it's just a reminder that there is a very rich history in, uh, in, in, of the US military kind of fighting what the authors call these intercultural conflicts. And, you know, arguably we, we didn't really understand a lot about Afghanistan, but there was a wealth of lessons learned from Vietnam that we could have applied. And, you know, as, as these authors point out, you can go back to the Philippines, for example, at the turn of the century, U.S. involvement there. And there, there, were, there were lessons learned from that, that campaign or conflict that uh, could have been spooled through to, to Vietnam. So, um, you know, I, I think the biggest mistake would be to just assume that we're not going to do this again. Uh, we may not do it in the size and scale of Iraq and Afghanistan, but, but you know, I think as the 90s showed, we most certainly are going to have instances where uh, there are going to be, you know, civil conflict, internal disorder, uh, really bad things that, that can happen in specific countries. And there may yet again be a call for the U.S. to intervene in one form or another. Uh, you may not be interested in counterinsurgency uh, but and counterterrorism, but counterterrorism and counterinsurgency may be interested in you. Although we, I have to say, right, the administration is saying we're going to continue counterterrorism efforts uh, world, worldwide, uh, even if uh, it, it doesn't mean a big uh, footprint. What are you expecting to hear from uh, Dr. Uh, Kathleen Hicks, the Deputy Defense Secretary at CSIS, uh, her old stomping ground uh, when, when you tune in? Well, again, it's it's just it's an interesting time, right? Because really, the FY twenty three budget is really starting to to come together. The services did their kind of heavy lift over the summer. Um, there was an announcement on Monday, uh, you know, September twenty seventh, about a new kind of baseline agreement for the F thirty five buys that that the DoD is looking for, and that kind of leveled. Uh, the total F-35 deliveries for 2021, 2022, and beyond. And, you know, you could argue that the out-year numbers may be a reflection of what's in that FY23 POM that the building has pulled together. So I think if she can give any hints about, you know, the presumption is it's still going to be a flat budget request. 
I, I absolutely expect her to echo some of the things that Secretary Kendall talked about last week at Air Force Association and your interview with him, Vago, you know, that um, <clears throat> we really have to move ahead um, and, and divest some of these older weapon systems that, that just may not be applicable to, to a high-end conventional campaign in the, in the latter part of this decade. So, you know, she's gotten out from time to time, but, but, you know, anytime you have one of these events, it, it becomes kind of a must listen because there, there may be something she says that kind of provides a, a better perspective of, of what's actually going on uh, in, in thought process about the, the defense budget going forward. And you are interested in a submarine briefing by Saab, yeah. uh, certainly one of the uh, world's innovative uh, defense companies, obviously working the A-26 submarine for the Swedish Navy uh, and looking for partners on it. Why, why are you tuning into that event? And what's the event and, what, and when is it? Well, it's, it's Tuesday. It happens at 3.30 a.m. Uh, East Coast time. It's obviously taking place in Sweden. Saab does these things every year, and it's just kind of an update. I think part of it is a little bit of hand-holding about, you know, the size of that program, the fact that, you know, Sweden really had a, a break in its submarine industrial base and how it's going. There are probably still some export uh, campaigns that they're going to be pursuing, you know, and it's just another perspective on um, on a on a program and a market area that uh, you know will be probably worth worth uh, a listen to. If not if not the actual event, if my alarm doesn't go off at at three fifteen, um, I may well catch the replay. But uh, that still need to be determined. Uh, you're you're all about live and not Memorex. Uh, an older generation will get the joke. Um, and when is the uh, Cath Hicks? Discussion that takes place at 10 a.m. East Coast time on Friday, October 1st at, at CSIS. Byron, thanks very much as always for joining us. Thank you, Vago. And joining us now is Laura Winter, who joined our team recently as our contributing editor for space and the host of our upcoming space podcast, The Downlink, uh, which is also a newsletter that she edits. Laura, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you, Vago. It's great to be here. Uh, absolute pleasure. It was terrific seeing you last week at the Air Force Association's annual Air Space Cyber uh, Conference and uh, Trade Show, especially on Space Day, uh, when we uh, heard from so many leaders of the United States Space Force, including the Chief of Space Operations, General Jay Raymond, and you were there uh, with me uh, for our conversation with Lieutenant General Salty uh, Saltzman. I want to uh, take you first uh, to the 2021 Outer Space uh, Security uh, Conference. You're covering it. It's ongoing right now. It's in Geneva, so you've been up since the week hours uh, following that conference. Talk to us a little bit about some of the key takeaways. This is bringing together a lot of the players who have a stake in space, who are trying to figure out, you know, what's safe, what's not, you know, who's breaking whose rules, are there any rules? There is a rule, it's called the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, but no one's really able to agree on much after that. And what gets really interesting is that they can't even seem to agree to what terms mean. And what I mean by terms is not suing for terms, but terms such as the peaceful use of space. What does the peaceful use of space actually mean? It could mean anything short of blowing something up, or it could mean, you know, using a satellite to measure, you know, the height of waves and nothing more than that. So they're, they're, having, they're having some issues there for sure. 
you know, it's it's interesting you should say that, right? Because there's so much um, stuff going on in space. Obviously, uh, we have Space Fence uh, and the X-37, obviously an incredible capability in order to be able to monitor out of space. Uh, space Force leaders have declassified uh, the nesting doll theory that the Russians are using or the grappling hooks, for example, that, that China um, has apparently tested in orbit. And there are spacecraft that are on intersecting orbits that could be um, um, hostile to American and allied spacecraft. Um, on the one hand, we have the international regulations on how it is everybody ought to behave. And then there is the reality of how people are behaving that are outside these norms and, and these boundaries. What What's the enforcement mechanism here, Laura? Because at the end of the day, it's a lot of smart people talking and saying, wow, you know, that's really bad. But ultimately, what what can the international community do if one, you know, if, if a great power wants to act outside norms? Well, I think actually at the end of the day, if a great power wants to out, act outside of, you know, generally accepted norms, which by the way, really aren't settled. Um, a great power at the end of the day can do whatever great power really wants to do um, is what's going to follow afterward. That's the deterrence factor. And if there's enough deterrence there for the great power to blink and say, right, it's going to cost me more than I want to spend to actually, you know, do the thing that I want to do, which is going to make everybody else angry in space. What's um, really difficult um, is that there really aren't internationally accepted norms of behavior outside of that 1967 um, outer space treaty. You know, the, um, the general idea is that you can go through space and you can do things in space as long as you don't molest or mess with or, you know, make it difficult for others to do what they want to do in space. But that starts to get really, really fuzzy when you start jamming other people's or other nations' signals or you start dazzling their satellites or you start sort of hanging around them and, and, and mirroring, you know, every single thing that they do, which seems a bit threatening, but then again, you know, is it threatening? Is it an act of violence? Is it aggressive? And that's where they're really having a difficult point. And certainly, right, as we heard from General Saltzman, that there is a sense that uh, international norms will ultimately prevail for uh, a free and open space, some of the language that we're using in the maritime domain as, as, as well. Um, what were some of the messages that you heard at AFA from uh, senior Air Force and Space Force leaders, as well as at the National Space Symposium that you covered as well? The main takeaway, and there really is one takeaway that I got from the entire um, AFA meeting, which is China, China, and China again. I feel like I'm somehow channeling Kendall himself, but Kendall really did set the tone with that. And from, from there on out, everything um, uh, falls into place. I mean, we had uh, Raymond you know, talking specifically about how to stay in the space domain, the importance of the space domain, and that you know, China does you know, pose a risk to our ability to continue to operate in the space domain, and that to do that, we have to do it at incredible speed, which is about 17,000, you know, 17, excuse me, 17,500 miles an hour. Um, and the other, if I could you know, really identify a second thing, a second theme of the, of the day, especially space day, was deterrence. 
that nobody wants to get into a fight in space, that the big, the big thing is to actually deter a conflict that either goes into space or starts in space. What's the consensus of, of what that deterrence ultimately looks like, right? I mean, it's from a it's increasingly being seen as a contested domain, right? I mean, obviously it was that during the Cold War, but nobody did rods from God or any of the other things uh, that we've been talking about. Secretary Gandel raised the prospect of uh, China putting munitions in space, uh, you know, whether they're fractal orbit devices or, uh, you know, God forbid, the worst case scenario is nuclear weapons in space where you get very, very little well, warning before uh, um, a, a thermonuclear device ends up on your head, right? I mean, all of our uh, missile warnings systems would be rendered inert. What does deterrence look like in, in space? And, and what is the, the latest level of thinking, whether at an international, national, uh, or uh, you know, think tank level uh, among those who, who theorize about this kind of stuff? I think that they're, um, the thinking at the think tank level and also at the policymaking level um, from what I saw today, is that deterrence really is multi-level. There is economic deterrence in the sense that if you go into space and you do something bad and there it creates lots of orbital debris, it's going to take out not only your adversary satellites, but it's going to probably take out yours as well, which has all kinds of knock-on effects. But before even getting to that, um, the norms of behavior is really what everyone seems to be attempting to zero in on, and to, but the agreement is where, where, where the issue comes in. But let's just stick with norms of behavior first. The norms of behavior, it comes down to accepted behaviors and being able to communicate that, hey, I have a grappling satellite. I'm using that grappling satellite to go work on one of my satellites. I'm not trying to destroy it or, or, or do anything you know, nefarious with it. So I'm going to go do this and I'm going to communicate that to you so that you know what my intention is, that my intention is not you know, to do any harm. But then uh -huh. there has to be an agreement of how is that communicated? Or is that, you know, the, the argument now goes into, well, is that really, you know, your intent? There is also the problem of trust. Do you trust what the other country is telling you? I mean, as we know with the Zapid exercises that Russia puts on, you know, every four years that they report a certain number of troops to Geneva and they seem to go, you know, well above and beyond that number of troops by, you know, at least twice as many. I mean, this year we had what, 200,000 troops along the border when they reported, I think it was like 20,000 or something to, to right. Geneva. So the thing is that trust in that communication and then to, to agree that that's really the intent. And that becomes a big issue because if something goes wrong, if something is misunderstood, then you have a chance of mistake. And that chance of mistake is where things really do blow up. No, no, no pun intended. Uh, you know, miscalculation leads into a blow up. That's kind of that's sort of, uh, you know, great power 101. 
Speaking of great power uh, competition, uh, the president uh, last week hosted uh, the um, leaders of the quad, uh, obviously Australia uh, in the form of Scott uh, Morrison, uh, Yoshihide Suga of uh, Japan, Narendra Modi uh, of India, and obviously uh, Joe Biden, a lot of smiles um, among, among the four. Um, you know, as folks uh, like to say, it's, it's, it's not about China, but it's all about China. Uh, at the end of the day, what were some of the, you know, you, you let off the downlink uh, this week with uh, the quad. Um, what were some of the things that you thought were most interesting? And what are these four nations going to be doing, particularly in your domain, the space domain that you think um, are, are worthy of noting? Well, what's really, to, just to start off that conversation, it's really worth noting what happened in the run up to the quad. Because on the Wednesday before the quad, um, a very senior um, Chinese diplomat who is retired, but is very senior, was speaking um, at a nuclear policy conference in China. And he uh, uttered the words that the unconditional no first use of nuclear weapons may no longer be suitable. So that sort of sent a shot out across the region into you know anybody who has an interest in the Indo-Pacific. And then on Thursday, China sent um, a whole raft of aircraft. I'm not even sure if that's the right way to say that, but basically a lot of fighter aircraft and two bombers, and those two bombers are of a certain class that can carry nuclear weapons. And they sent that aircraft over into Taiwanese airspace. That was the day before. So that all led up to the smiles that we saw at the White House and you know the grip, grips and grin. But when the doors were closed and they got down to work, they already had their idea of what, what was really at stake. I mean, it was all about China, but China kind of helped them make it all about China in the, in the 48 hours running up to the meeting. Now, the space part of this is that while they're not really ready, rather India is really not really ready to, to make the quad into a more formalized um, security um, framework, which um, the other two nations, um, Japan and Australia, are definitely interested in exploring. Nevertheless, um, when it comes to space, there is going to be an exchange of um, satellite data. And there's gonna be an exchange of technology may not be quote unquote satellite direct as in directly technology that says, hey, this is how you build this for a satellite. But there's going to be a lot of exchanges. And when it comes to um, the satellite data, they say that it's going to be for, you know, it's going to be earth observation, which kind of goes back to how the quad even formed, which was in the wake of the, um, the, the tsunami. But as we know, everything that's in space is dual use. So when you look at that, quote unquote, you know, peaceful earth observation sort of, you know, data, you know, what is the data really looking at? What is it really showing? And what can somebody who's smart really pull out of that data? So that's what that's 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 how it kind of turns back around without actually publicly turning back around onto China when you're talking about the space domain. 
and very briefly before we go, you know, you, you brought in uh, nuclear, uh, obviously Frank Kendall, uh, the Secretary of the Air Force, and I would commend everybody, check out our coverage uh, at AFA. We talked to Secretary Kendall, we talked to uh, Lieutenant General Q High Note, uh, and as I mentioned, we talked to uh, Lieutenant General Salty uh, Saltzman uh, as well, uh, Q being uh, sort of the head of Air Force uh, strategy uh, and uh, General Saltzman, obviously, uh, uh, Space Operations Chief. What Secretary Kendall said he was most worried about was uh, the several hundred uh, land-based uh, intercontinental ballistic missile silos that the Chinese are building uh, that indicate potentially a very aggressive nuclear modernization campaign, um, and uh, which which does change uh, the the strategic uh, dynamic very uh, sharply. By the way, uh, just uh, briefly, what's been the response to the folks you're talking about regarding the aggressive nature of Chinese nuclear modernization, right? I mean, historically, we have a tendency of saying, oh, you know, they've got a couple of hundred nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, they're they're not really that big of a nuclear threat, whereas that's exactly what's taking everybody aback is, wait a minute, the nuclear aspirations are clearly above and beyond uh, what every, anybody really anticipated. From, from your standpoint, what's the feedback you're getting on that? What I find interesting is that there's not a lot. And I don't think it's because they're not thinking about it. I think it's more about they're not prepared to actually talk about it. And I can say that, and, and, and if I can kind of turn that around on its head a little bit, but by the same token, you know, the discussions today that were happening in Geneva, there were quite a number of Chinese um, participating. And they are all from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and therefore they are going to, you know, use the, um, the, the, the lines that are given to them. And what I found really interesting was that there was a complete avoidance of any discussion about the Quad or any discussion about AUKUS. It's kind of like they, they know it's there. They have an opinion, but they're not quite ready to talk about it. Laura, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it and can't wait uh, to get the podcast launched here in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much. Absolutely, Vago. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.